Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we're in Matthew 26, part 1, and uh, um, we've finished all of the teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Really, he's still teaching, of course, because he's Jesus, um, but the Olivet Discourse is kind of wrapped up, which talked about his second coming, uh, but don't worry about it. You're going to be snatched out of the field. Um, be watching and be ready and be doing the work that he's told us to do. So fairly straightforward. We move back kind of into a narrative section here. Uh, with the the eminent crucifixion of Jesus on the horizon. Try reading this like the disciples went through it, though. You know, at some point, they believe he's going to be crucified. They believe he's going to be killed. I don't think they have any understanding of how horrid it's going to be and what this is looking like. So as he's saying and doing these last things, there had to kind of be this um, flux that they were in. But the the plot to kill Jesus is in every other gospel, so this gets to be something that's common between all four gospels. Matthew does it from a distinctly Hebrew perspective. He's going to say and do a lot of things that if you were raised Jewish, you would understand the connection of what he's going to say. So we're going to be doing a lot of cross-references, and we'll try to uh, make sure that we hear it like a Jewish person would have heard it. Uh, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. <laughs> they don't, in chapter 16, chapter 20, they kind of challenged him with that idea. They're not challenging him at all. Like they know it's coming. They've accepted this teaching. Meanwhile, verse three, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Um, so it sets the stage for what's about to happen. Now it came to pass, we're moving into a historical narrative, and it says, after two days is the Passover. This is, again, we are pulling this stuff out. This is the historicity of Matthew is incredible. When it gives us that two days till Passover, we're now on a timeline. We can see that things are kind of, the date has been selected. Um, it started with the triumphant entry in verse 21. Um, and Jesus went into the temple, and on that day, they, they cleaned the leaven out of their homes. Jesus is cleaning the sin out of the temple, just matching everything with Passover. Uh, he's crucified on the cross the same day that the priests are going to be doing all the sacrifices in the temple and killing uh, hundreds, I think thousands of lambs. I got the numbers here somewhere. The Son of Man will be delivered up and be crucified. That's not an abstract prophecy. <laughs> like, he's not guessing. He's not speaking metaphorically. Um, how does he know he's going to be crucified? Again, let's roll this back. Like, Jesus knows how he's going to be killed, but he has no control over it. And Jewish people don't crucify folks. Romans crucify people. It's Caiaphas in verse 3 that's plotting to kill him. Those are Jewish people. So how is that handoff even going to happen? So they're plotting to do things uh, really comes from his claim to divine nature. Jesus claimed to have the role that God has in the Jewish life. 
And I, I think people, because we read it in the English, we don't understand how horrible that was to the Jewish ear, that a human being would claim the right of judgment, that would claim the priesthood, that would claim prophetic notion, but then also claim that he got all of that on his own authority. He's claiming to be God because you don't tell prophecies in your own name. You do it in the name of God or the Lord says or thus saith the Lord. So this trickery they're going to try to get him with um, is on Passover, but they don't want to do it on any day of Passover. So it's interesting that Jesus knows the day it's going to happen. Meanwhile, then it flips over to Caiaphas. They're saying any day but that day. So at the same time, Jesus is saying it's going to happen in two days. So how is that going to work out? So you've got all these contrasting things between the plots of humans and the prophecy of Jesus and how that's going to work and how it's going to happen. So they had to work each other towards this. Um, again, even just this idea that they're plotted and that there's trickery here, a Hebrew listener would remember things like Psalm 31, 13. I've heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. And just the, the way in which this is happening fulfills all sorts of things. Caiaphas is a big deal. And again, you know I'm a geek about this. Caiaphas was the high priest in Jerusalem from 18 to 36 AD. 18 to 36 AD. He then was disposed and he killed himself two years after Jesus was resurrected. So Caiaphas didn't last long. So by the fact that Matthew is saying who was called Caiaphas is because he's dead. So within the text, you see some of those historical features being played out in the language. Pontius Pilate, who's the one who authorized the crucifixion in chapter 27, he was in charge of this region from 26 to 36 AD. His end was also not so good. So, and then Luke 3 talks about John the Baptist starting his ministry in, in, in year 15 of Tiberius Caesar, and then this happening so many years after it, then the date of crucifixion gets down to 29 to 36 AD when you put Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, and John the Baptist and that dating all together. So now you've got that window narrowed down. So when G Matthew writes two days is the Passover, that's another clue, all right? So <laughs> track this. Friday lands on Passover. So Passover is a holiday where it doesn't land on a day of the week. It lands on a number of the week. So the, the years in which Passover hit on a Friday we're 80-30 and 80-33. Now we're down to two years when Jesus' crucifixion could have happened. 80-30 does not allow for a three-year ministry, which is recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus taught for about three and a half years. So it doesn't allow for that time, which means Jesus was crucified on April 3rd of 33 AD. And it lands right there based on those clues that are confirmed amongst the other Gospels and through Roman records. Chapter 27 narrows it down. He died at 3 o'clock on April 3rd, 33 AD. 3-3-3-3. It is finished. It's complete. Right? So every particular date and time is recorded here, as predicted by Daniel 9.25. Like, we got it down to the minute of when these things happened. Jesus' crucifixion happened in history at a real time in a real place. It's not a myth. It's not an abstract narrative. It's something that's clocked and timed, and we can verify it right in the text itself with these little clues like Caiaphas was in charge at that time. So for me, I just love the fact that we don't worship a theory. 
We worship a God who came into history, died and rose again in history, and that's the claim of Christianity. So how could that possibly happen? Because he was God. That answers that question. So people were already stirred up. They knew that they were looking for Messiah. Jesus came in with the palm branches. So if the, the, the religious leaders try to crucify him, they're thinking they're going to have a riot on their hands. Um, and, and, and they probably would have. So they got the plans to do it quietly after the Passover if they could. Um, but God's plans were to be doing this publicly, right? So the plans of the priests didn't play out. Um, Jesus is going to, this is all going to be part of the crowd is going to be part of making this happen and they're culpable in the event. So why do the nations raise and the people plot a vain thing? Psalm 2.1, uh, because this is part of the plan. Godless people often think that their rejection of God has some impact on his sovereignty. It has none. So they can plot to do it after the Passover, but God's plan is going to carry out the way it's going to carry out. And it's almost funny when people think that they've got plans, right? If people got plans, they probably haven't submitted their life to the Lord, who's also got some plans. And God's plan just keeps rolling along. And God wants a fireworks show. He doesn't want some quiet, covert killing in a back room. He wants this to be on display in public so it lands in history. And it's a verifiable thing where we get multiple people that witnessed it. So get ready for the fireworks. This is all going to be fulfilling prophecy. And for, if I could, I'm going to pause for a sec in our chapter and I'm going to bounce around the Bible a little bit because I love this thing with Passover that God chose to do. He established Passover back when the Jews were pulled out of Egypt, right? And this is a holiday that God commanded in a very particular way because that holiday is going to, rep, going to match perfectly with what's going on with Jesus. In other words, God redeemed an entire people group and culture established a holiday in that culture that would perfectly fit with his plan that was going to happen thousands of years later. Like that's our God. And to know how big our God is, that's pretty significant. So Matthew's writing to Jews and everything he just packed in there. And when he says Passover, Passover is as familiar a holiday to his readers as Christmas is to us, right? And we have the Christmas thing and we have practices and different families do it in slightly different ways. And, but we all know who Santa is, right? We all know what happens on Christmas morning. And we all know Christmas Eve, there's, we gather as a family and do those sorts of things. So that's Passover for the Jews. We didn't grow up Jewish, so Passover is not as familiar to us. And these images that Matthew's giving may not fit the same way. So note that when he says Passover in this verse, that brings to mind a particular season of the year for every Jewish reader. Um, Nisan 10, the month of Nisan and the day of 10, uh, is the triumphant en entry of Matthew chapter 21.5. He rides on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He's presented to the priests. The money changers are cleaned out of the temple. And then there's going to be, on, on the first day of Passover, uh, you bring uh, this lamb and you bring him into your house and you live with the lamb for three days. Exodus 12.3. Speak you to the congregation of Israel, saying, and again, this is God's command. In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man, every head of household, a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, and a lamb for a house. Now, I don't have to personally take the lamb, but if the head of my household takes the lamb and brings it into the house, that lamb is being sacrificed for me too. And that law, that rule, 
makes it so that as long as I'm a member of that household, and this includes non-biological people, this includes servants, anybody who lives in that household can, be, can have that lamb be their sacrifice. So Exodus 3, 4, the size of the household's taken into account. And it even says if you have a smaller family, you can share a lamb with another family. So the rules are there to where I don't have to be biologically related to the lamb or, or to the head of the household. If the father of the household says, I'm in the house, then I'm in the house. And that lamb can cover me too. But the idea of the lamb was that they would, they would sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on their doorposts so that the angel of death would go right over their house and hit the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And so they're commemorating that time. And part of how they commemorate it is they bring this lamb into the house. Lambs typically stay outside. So they would groom it. They would comb it out. They'd get all the ticks off it. And maybe give it a little bath and fluff it up, which is why we call this lamb fluffy. Um, it is heartbreaking because after three days, your little kids are going to get attached to that cute little lamb who needs you and doesn't know what's about to happen to it. Um, then on day two, Nisan 11, covered in chapter 21, 19, when Jesus goes back into the city, he's hungry and he curses the fig tree. He's shown as he goes back into the temple, every religious group, inspects him, combs his mind, tries to find a tick, and they can't find anything wrong with the lamb. And all of day two is this testing that goes on for Jesus. His followers pray, and he teaches them about faith and fruitfulness in their life. Exodus 12:5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats. You're going to separate it out and bring it into your home. I, the imagery here is so Beautiful. Male of the first year means they're ready to be a productive lamb in your flock, right? Just have come of age, so to speak. Nisan 12, day three of Passover, chapters 24 and 25, Jesus explains he's going to get killed and he speaks of a sacrifice that he would return. And coming next, he's anointing the family that he's caring for. And he starts to establish this idea um, and of who's in his family and who's not, he spends an entire chapter giving all the arrogance and the woes to all the hip Hippocratic religious leaders, the leaven that's in the household. And he distances himself and he walks away from the temple and that household altogether. They're not his household. And he establishes, I think, the church with his disciples. Group of people meeting in a house, hearing Jesus' words, and deciding they're going to live by it. Then Nisan 13 um, this is the, the day with the last day of the family, the lambs with the family for three and a half days. Uh, just like Jesus says that, uh, that he'll come back, the lamb's not coming back, right? Different kind of lamb. Um, and then uh, th we have this. Remember Jewish days go from bedtime to bedtime. So this evening of the, 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 fourth, the fourth day, you would have that daybreak would be like right after supper. So you could eat that supper together and, and, then, and then move on. So then you have Nisan 14. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's like a holiday within a holiday. But they would have this feast, and guess what they're eating on that day? The fluffy, right? So they're, they're enjoying the, the gift that that lamb gave to their family in protecting them and covering them as a symbol of what happened with Exodus. That symbol of Exodus is also a symbol then of Christ. Luke 22 makes this really clear. Jesus says at the Last Supper, 
I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until the meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The symbol of Passover was not just for Exodus. It was also for Jesus. He's tried. He's beaten on the cross at 9 o'clock and he's tortured all day. And at 3 o'clock he is dead and he is buried. That's the first day of the three days of burial. But remember then they still go and eat supper and evening then still happens. So people get confused. How do you have Good Friday? He's in the grave for three days and then Sunday that's two days. Well, it's because the evening over here, he's in the grave by three o'clock, right? And then that's day one. And then day two is Friday or day two is Saturday and day three is Sunday and he rises in the morning. Exodus 12, 6. I'm just going through Exodus 12. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, Nisan 14. And the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. So God's very particular about when he wants them to kill the lamb. Kill the lamb on the evening of the day 14. And then Exodus 12, 7. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two sides of the post and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. A doorpost in that day was two beams of wood. That's why it says two. There'd be the, the support beam that went this way, and there'd be the cross beam that went over it, and they'd have hinges on the door, and this is just open, right? So a Jewish door in that part of the, the, the world was, I don't know if you get the image here, but it's a cross beam going one across the other, and you'd put the blood on the cross on day 14. Then you'd eat the lamb, and everybody partakes of it. The whole... All Jewish people partake of the Feast of the Lamb, and they're supposed to eat it quickly, right? They're not supposed to let that food go, so they're supposed to eat it like they're running out of town, just like they're leaving Exodus. So this, this idea of the body being in the tomb then on the 14th, all day on the 15th of Nisan, uh, death resides over it, just like the Jewish people hid in their houses, waiting for the angel of death to go over Egypt, right? And death is in the land, so you don't leave the house. Like, hunker down and, and, and wait and pray the Lord will save you. Exodus 12, 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Against all gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I even like that it's I am the Lord right there. When Jesus dies on the cross, he establishes the new judgment for the second coming of Jesus. He is the Lord. And he's going to judge the heavens and the earth based on how they respond to the name of Jesus and the sacrifice and if that blood is over their doorpost or not. Are you in the family or are you not in the family? Right? There's only two types of people in the world. Those that love the Lord Jesus and make him as Lord and Savior and those that don't. And, it, and, and, and So then you get to Nisan 16. This is the last day of Passover. Um, they're redeemed and they're bought. The blood has covered them and they are free to live their lives without a dead firstborn son. So this is amazing. So the firstborn son survives and lives in the same way that Jesus does. God's in total control of events and he pairs Passover perfectly with what happens with the sacrifice of the lamb. This is why we call Jesus the lamb of God. Because he is. God. If God's our father and, and we are in his household, our sacrifice has been given once and for all. We don't have to keep doing the sacrifice every year. Because it is fulfilled, it is finished. Exodus 12, 13, And the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see blood, I will pass over you. 
and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Every God-fearing Hebrew had to ask, whose house am I in? And am I in the right house or not? So God promises David an eternal house. This is where this comes from. We're in it on Sunday night, 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name, not for David's name, for my name, which is Jesus. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, not David's, Jesus's. And I will be his father and he shall be my son. Amen? Like, this is wonderful. So if Jesus is then our, the blood of the lamb that, that covers us, we're in God's household. And the cross itself becomes the, the beams of wood that have the blood all over it. I'll go back to Matthew. This image that we're getting when Jesus talks about the Passovers in two days, his disciples know. My point is, they know exactly what he's talking about. They understand the imagery and the completion that Jesus is teaching right now. In a way that when we're just reading over this, we don't pick that up. But the Jews knew day one, day two, day three. It was a thing they did every year since they were little kids. Like they had it memorized, you know? And, and, and instead of some cartoonish Santa coming through a chimney, they get the salvation of Jesus Christ, the blood covering their sins for all of eternity. It's an absolutely significant overlap that's going on there. Verse 6 in our chapter. Let's go back to Matthew. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head, and he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why the waste? Why this waste? For this oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. <laughs> right. I love that. Again, you're just going through this word by word. Uh, Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's outside of town. It's kind of down through the Kidron Valley and up over the Mount of Olives. And it's, it would be just a little outpost where a bunch of farmers would live. Um, Jesus is staying there because every inn in town is probably taken. Like this is Passover season. Everybody's traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, and he has friends there. Simon the leper, likely, you don't get a name like that and then stay in his house. He's likely been healed of leprosy. So this could be the leper that Jesus healed. Uh, and he's staying there. He's part of the family. The woman that comes to him in John 12, we know that's Mary. And she's got a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus. So you can see how his ministries have really been tied to the same couple families, right? He's got brothers as disciples like You'd think that Jesus would have thousands of thousands of people, but he's got kind of a close network of friends. So he's staying with his friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Uh, um, Lazarus, we know, is raised from the dead. Martha, we know, likes to stay busy instead of worshiping the Lord. And every time we see Mary in the Bible, she's worshiping the Lord. Like, what kind of record is that, right? Matthew chooses to leave the names out. In a letter, literary sense, he's abstracting the story. Because Matthew knows who these people are too. He gives the name of the head of the house as he's talking about Passover. So Simon the leper is, is arguably the head of the household and he doesn't mention any other names. I think because Matthew's using this display as, of affection as how the family would take care of the lamb during that time that the lamb's staying with them. He's giving a practical image of a Passover family. And by, putting, by eliminating the names, he's abstracting it to be like, any Jewish family, because he's trying to make this connection to Passover. At least that's my thought. And Luke is giving an account, and, and he does it a little bit differently if you want to read it in his book. The alabaster flask. Alabaster is actually a stone. It's a carvable stone, uh, and it's extremely expensive. 
So it, like when you buy your perfume and they're in really fancy glass bottles, that's nothing compared to an alabaster bottle um, for the perfume. So, and the other thing with an alabaster flask is they'd often do it in such a way to where to open the flask, you had to break the top of it, like a wine bottle with a thin neck. And instead of a cork at the top, you'd have to actually break the glass at the top. So there's a little bit of um, kind of this idea of an extravagance to it. Um, and the point of it is that Jesus is prepared to be their sacrifice. They're going to treat him as well as they can. And they're going to anoint him. And they're going to do all these things. She takes it out to anoint with oil. Um, uh, don't miss that she poured it on his head. In, in America, when we do anointings, and, and depending on what church community you're from, uh, you know, we kind of just put it on the thumb and wipe it on the forehead or you know, do an anointing with a simple thing. In the first century, that wasn't an, a proper anointing. When Samuel anointed David and when Mary's anointing Jesus, you take the whole bottle, you dump it out over their head. And I think it's this, is if the oil is an image of the Holy Spirit, we don't want little teeny bits of it. We want a Gatorade bucket of it flowing over us. Like that's the idea here. So um, the alabaster flask, it's used in the temple. Uh, so this is, uh, it's used by the groom in the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 515. The very costly fragrant, fragrant oil, there's no specific amount of it that's listed, just that it was extravagant, that it was expensive. Mark 14.3 says it's an essence of nard or spikenard, which we have for lunchtime. So you're all going to get to smell spikenard. Here's the thing with this. It is an oil, not a perfume. <laughs> you don't anoint with this to smell good, right? And, I, and for me, I always kind of grew up thinking, oh, this, you know, it's like deodorant. It's, trust me, it's the opposite of deodorant. Um, it is purifying is what it is. And it is something that will, it smells like cleaner. Um, likely when a whole bottle of spikenard is dumped out in your house, this, the flavor of it does not smell good. I'm just going to, fair enough. Like it is not room freshener, depending on who you are. Either it smells okay or nice to your nose or it is repugnant to your nose. Sound familiar? A lot like the Holy Spirit. Depending on where your heart is, the Holy Spirit can give very different reactions with different people. Spikenard Spike works like that. I'm thinking Judas's nose, like Judas hated the smell of this. Like he walked in and he's like, oh, it just smells like B.O., right? Um, but I think like what Mary's doing right here is absolute and pure worship. She's taking something of value and giving it to the Lord. And worship isn't just singing songs. Like I love singing songs. That is a kind of worship. But what Mary's doing here is she's worshiping the Lamb of God for the gift that he's about to give. And she gives everything she can think of to, to return or to honor that person. Frankly, she's the only person in the room doing this, which means the disciples maybe weren't picking up on what a beautiful sacrifice Jesus was about to give. So she gives of herself, uh, she pours it on Jesus, she just gives all of it. She's all in on worship, so to speak. And worship, biblically, is to give our lives to God, all of our lives, not just part of it. And this is the first use, when we look at the first use of the word worship, it was Abraham giving Isaac and telling his servants to stay with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. That's the first use of worship in the Bible. It had nothing to do with music. It had to do with Abraham being willing to give up his son for the service of the Lord. Typically, worship like this can then get associated with offering or giving God his due. 
Give to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Worship is giving of ourselves to the Lord, giving of our hearts to the Lord, um, and giving his due to him. A lot like when Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar, but give to me what's mine. He wants our worship. Why this waste in verse 8? <laughs> this is the disciples' reaction, specifically according to Mark. Mark does name names. I like Mark. He's, he's really blunt, and he's, he's not trying to protect you know, reputations. He's like, it was Judas that was ticked off about all this stuff. He was the guy leading the charge, and the other disciples kind of agreed with them. So he's getting crucified. Why would you waste that much money on him? Might be a thought Judas had. Like, if he's going to die in two days, why are you wasting the oil on him? right? So John, John also singles Judas out on this complaint. Um, and Mark tells about, and in 14.5 says, this is a year's wages that this perfume was worth. A year's wages. So, it, you know, what's the average income in the U.S. right now? Like 45000 right? And for sheep herders, maybe 40000 Still, a $40,000 bottle of oil just got broke over the head of Jesus. Like, there's some shock value there that a rational human being would say, that seems a little wasteful to me. But Mary's doing things as the Holy Spirit's guiding her to do it. So people often worship junk and vanities and things that make us happy. We worship our pastimes. Trust me, I go through houses, I see shrines in every third house I look at. Absolute shrines. And so we worship the things that we like or those things that, that equal to us something that means success or happiness or joy. And for Mary, that was Jesus. She worshiped Jesus. And she's willing to give for that. So um, we worship God with our time, our first fruits in our heart, and we get excited about that. And I honestly think this is like a great gut check for all believers. Do you love Jesus more than that other stuff in your life? And if the answer is yes to that, the other stuff may or may not be idols or bad, but they should, it should never take the precedence over Jesus. So the disciples see this as a waste, and Mary rightly sees this as an eternal benefit. And she's right, because here we are in 2022, reading about Mary's gift to Jesus. Like what she gave was really valuable. I don't know how much it'd be worth to get like a promo spot in the Bible itself, like God's word, but Mary just earned that, right? And she earned it with her heart. Um, so there's this thought. And then the other thing in that verse, it says, we could have given it to the poor. That sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, at some level, that's letting us see the hearts of the disciples. But I don't, I kept reading it over and it doesn't feel like a heart of worship at all. We're going to give this to the poor. And then it occurred to me like, oh, that's like the common hypocrite line. Instead of actually helping the poor, you, you, your heart bleeds for all of the abstract poor people in the world. Oh, the humanity of it all. And that idea of ignoring individuals and then expressing some sort of desire for, the, for other people that you don't know. So you look compassionate like the disciples here. I think Judas is trying to look really compassionate. But at the end of the day, he just wants to keep the money for himself. And he's greedy. But he's layering on top of his greed and his sick heart some sort of like compassion for others. And I, I, I think it's something to be wary of because every time something bad happens, we, we immediately see some sort of give us your money so we can help all these poor and starving fill in the blanks, right? And, and it tugs at your heartstrings. But sending money to people is not the same as taking them into your home. It's not the same as actually meeting a need that's in your body or in the fellowship of believers that's there. 
but there is this idea, and I'm going to call it indignant compassion, that whoever's the most indignant about their compassion is somehow the most holy. And it's a really kind of slippery thing that sometimes ha happens in the church, is this like outrage for the need to do things, and whoever cares the most is the most upset about it. But it doesn't strike me as Jesus' will, and it didn't strike Jesus either, verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, this indignant compassion, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Again, here we are in 2022. Why do you trouble the woman? This is the good work that matters. If you don't have Jesus glorified in your life, there's no good work that matters past that point. Go back to the start and, and renew your relationship and worship of the Lord. Remember the last ch uh, chapter, Jesus was teaching that they should be ready for his return. And he taught them that in part to do good works was to be ready for his return. It's not that doing good works is bad. It's not that feeding the poor is bad. The last chapter, he just taught for them to do those things. And they're kind of repeating it back. But he is saying there has to be a priority here, right? Don't give me your abstract indignant compassion when the worship of God needs to happen right now. And this, this event that they're doing, this remembrance that they're doing is important. So she blesses him. She honors him. She gives Jesus the regal treatment. And notice he says, she did it for my burial. He, he's absolutely still connecting this to Passover. Like, you have to do this because this is part of the burial process. For you have the poor with you always, but you will not always have me. And again, that's not a word against helping the poor or serving the poor at all. The point is that worship takes the priority over that. That's part of being ready for Jesus too, is that worship happens. And it, and it does help us see a little bit um, that he's going to be with the church. So as we move forward in Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, teach these disciples to obey all the commandments I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. So when Jesus says, you won't always have me with you, he's talking about a very short amount of time because he then goes on to promise, I'll be with you all the time. When you're with your church. Right? There's a kind of a context for that. Honoring Jesus when his presence is with us is then an aroma that we all get to enjoy, a spike nard aroma. Um, Ephesians 5.2, live a life filled with love. Follow the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. What's the aroma? Spike nard. Right? I just love that the disciples got this and then they wrote about it. And even Paul wasn't in the room right now, but he would have heard this story and talk about how the sacrifice had a pleasing aroma. When he went to get beat or whipped, he smelled like spike nard. Like he's getting gussied up for all this. I, the, the contrast there is to me just stunning. This is going to be a memorial to her. Um, the hour is coming, John 4, 3. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It has nothing to do with the cost of the perfume. This is not about money. This is about the heart. And it's so important that we understand that. He doesn't want you to just go through the, the, the loops. He wants you to fall in love with his word and his will and his, his character, his, to be, have a relationship with Jesus. Some people argue that Mary doesn't know what she's doing here. I think that's absolute baloney. 
Like, honestly, if any of those commentators ever heard this teaching, <laughs> that's baloney. She's doing the best she can do for Jesus, and she knows exactly what she's doing. Nobody spends a $40,000 bottle of perfume and doesn't know what they're doing. Not a grown adult, maybe like a five-year-old. But not, Mary's not a, she's not a five-year-old. She has a pure and loving heart, and she doesn't care what it costs. This is what Jesus deserves. So Mary gets elevated. Judas gets reprimanded. We have to then bring in the male-female thing here. That's going to enrage Judas. Like, what's setting this guy off? Jesus just elevated Mary as doing the right thing over Judas doing the wrong thing, and Judas thinks he's sensible. So he takes off. We know that he walks out, in, likely in an indignant huff, that he's just infuriated right now because of this interaction. And we always, I mean, we, I know that anointing of Mary here is often told with a focus on Mary, but don't forget the character of Judas who, who's, who's in the room right now too and just got slighted by the master. Judas is the only guy that's not from Galilee in the group. He's from Judah, right? He's from, he's, it's like he's the guy from New York, right? He's the city guy. He's the, he's the cultured guy. He's the guy they let hold their money because he's, you know, the financial guy. He's the most respectable guy in the group, and he just got put down, right? And so that slighting uh, to anybody with any kind of pride would be harsh. Verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot. Again, the Iscariot's there to, to note what part of the country he's from. He's a, he's a fancy pants. He's Iscariot, right? He's not just some Judas. He's Judas Iscariot. Matthew's just Matthew, right? But Judas, he's Judas Iscariot. Went to the five priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? I like that he didn't even need to say the name, right? I deliver him to you. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Uh, one of the 12 uh, listed specifically, Matthew has listed all of them in 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Um, Jesus gathered a very particular group of men to be part of the leadership of this church movement that he's going to start. He sent them out in chapter 10, verse 5, just these 12 guys. He sent them out in groups of two. He taught them privately in chapter 20. So these people had kind of a, an inside loop as to Jesus' ministry. In the resurrection, he first appears to Peter, um, and then he appears to, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, uh, he appears to the 12, um, and we see that they have a prominent role in the new church. I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And then this group of 12 people all have 12 thrones in heaven, 1928 in the book of Matthew. They have to replace Judas in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, right? So they, this idea that there's these 12 people, that image of 12, one of the 12, is because the number 12 is the number of tribes of Judah. There would be 12 elders of the tribe of Judah. So as God establishes a kingdom, he establishes a kingdom that at, at this point of authority, they have these 12 people, these 12 thrones, 12 tribes, 12 disciples. And that's a consistent thing throughout the Bible that there's an established group of people that God has handpicked to be in this, this place. So when Judas does this, it is the worst kind of betrayal. Like we've all, I'm thinking as you get older, you get betrayed. Like, this is the worst kind of betrayal. This is a brother, someone that Jesus hand-selected, right? He hired him on and brought him on board and, and put, took a risk on him. Judas, the name itself, means praise. And Iscariot means a man from Kerioth, 
So this, this guy that was maybe a misfit in the group because he was well-trained, well-educated, didn't help him. So he gets aggravated. He gets up in a huff. He leaves the room because Mary was told she was doing it the right way. Um, and he runs out and offers to betray Jesus. So Satan finds the one guy in the group that had a little too much pride and a little too much greed. And Satan's looking for the weak spot all the time with the groups of people. And he's always looking to get that betrayal going. And he says, what are you willing to give me? Right after he was told that, that, that you know, he's saying it's a waste to do this alabaster for a large amount of money. And then he's like, what do you give me for a cheap amount of money? Right? The contrast is there too. Like Matthew shows this greed aspect, I think because Matthew was a tax collector and he had already dealt with the greed thing. So he sees that this is a problem in Judah in part because he struggles with the same sins. Perhaps this is political. Perhaps Judah, Ju Judas is jealous of the Galilean. Perhaps he still has allegiance for the temple and he sees that Jesus is, is, is diminishing the temple with all the woes for the religious elites. And maybe part of Judas is like, I still like my rabbi. I don't have a problem with these people. But in the end, full revelation, he's unable to accept Jesus at his word. At the end of the day, that's what splits him out. 30 pieces of silver. Um, other than that Matthew's a tax collector, why do we care if it's 30 pieces of silver? And, and it's, in Matthew, it's the only gospel to note the amount. So I, I do want to look at how for a Jewish reader, the number 30 with silver coins has meaning. Um, in Exodus 21.32, <laughs> an obscure little law. And again, you're reading through your law and it's hard to read the law sometimes. You're just like, why is that there? They're just these odd little things. But all of those odd little things seem to connect with a story somewhere else in the Bible. This is one of them, Exodus 21.32. If the ox gores a slave, either man, male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave owner 30 silver coins, and the ox must be stoned. So if an animal that you own does some damage to somebody else, that's the price of an animal. And in the, the Old Testament, it's also the price of the lowest form of servant. It's a fairly small amount of money. By today's standard, uh, you know, silver's worth a lot more. But if you try to like take that and compare it, because that was what they made their coins out of, it's about 25 bucks. Like Judas is betraying Jesus for about 25 bucks. So you combine this with Mary's story and about 40 grand being used to anoint Jesus, it's only about 25 bucks to betray Jesus. And you think that if he's a greedy guy, he would figure out that he's got everything backwards here. Mary, by the way, would be seen as someone in that household who was a servant. And if Martha's the older person, she'd be the lower servant in the household and so for those servants, that small amount of money, generally you got shelter and food. You didn't get money. So the payment for a servant, a female servant in the Old Testament was 30 pieces of silver per year. And you're saying 25 bucks a year, that's really cheap. It is, but they have food and they have shelter. But they're in that household and they get about that much there. So maybe Judas was thinking when the, when the priest said this, Maybe he's thinking when, when Mary uses that jar of $40,000 worth of oil, maybe he's thinking, Mary, you're only worth 30 silver a year. And he's connecting all this stuff. And he goes in, the priests say, well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver, treating him like a female servant that's the lowest in the household. I just, 
connections with this that maybe were going on with Jewish people. Judas is supposed to be a shepherd in training, but I think he's judging Mary and he doesn't like those woes that Jesus just give. So the value of a person, Leviticus 20, 27 verse 2, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. This is straight from God. If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate someone to the Lord by paying the value of the person, here's the scale of the values to be used. A woman of that age, a younger woman, is valued at 30 shekels of silver. That's what it would have meant to a Hebrew. So if you're going to say, oh, I just want to serve the king, and you go in and to your pastor, how can I help? What can I do? You know what? You can do this, this, and this. Oh, I don't have the time to do it. But then you would pay the temple that 30 pieces of silver because that would be the gift that you would give. Judas has been paid exactly what a female servant was paid in Leviticus 27. So not only is he put down by Jesus, but his services aren't valued by the priesthood very much either. Apparently his life and honor is worth in the world is worth as much as Mary. And I love the fact that Jesus said, no, 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 what Mary's doing is worth so much more. Judas, you just don't get it. The sequence here of what's going on <laughs> also fulfills prophecy perfectly. Everything, every word in Matthew, it, it, you just, it's stunning. If you want, I'm going to read a larger second section from Zechariah. If you flip to the book of Zechariah, chapter 11. And you'll want to mark up this Zechariah 11 passage and just put Matthew 26 next to it if you don't already have the cross-reference. Again, we're talking about Jesus is the Lamb of God giving authority to his disciples to be shepherds of the church, to take care of his flock. Like the imagery here is just stunning. Zechariah 11 verse 4 is where I'll pick up. This is what the Lord my God says. Notice that in most of the cross-references today, it starts with God says. It's like God put these things in place for a reason. Go and care for the flock that is intended for slaughter. The buyers slaughter their sheep without remorse. The sellers say, praise the Lord, now I'm rich. Even the shepherds have no compassion on them. Nobody cares about Fluffy. Like everybody just whacks them and doesn't worry about it. They harden their heart against killing that sweet little animal. Verse 7, so I cared for the flock intended for slaughter, the flock that was oppressed. Then I took two shepherd staffs and named one favor and the other union, two pieces of wood. And he breaks covenant. God breaks covenant with Israel. And then in verse 12, and I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I'm worth. But if only you want to, so they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. That's sarcasm in the Bible, right? You thought I was worth 25 pieces of silver. Okay. So the Lord himself values himself. I don't think money means much to God. It really isn't about money. So he's like, if that's what you think I'm worth, okay. So I took the 30 coins and I threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. What sorrow awaits this worthless shepherd who abandons the flock? I think talking about Judas. He's a shepherd that was meant to take care of the flock. And instead of doing that, he's just turning in his Lord. What's the Lord worth to you? 30 pieces of silver. We'll get back to the potter's field stuff here in a chapter. <laughs> that's coming up too. Judas sought opportunity. Having been paid, 
He's now an active divider trained to go and get Jesus. So he's going, he goes to do this, but then he goes back to hang out with the disciples. Total traitor behavior. This is low down, dirty, rotten stuff. He's a worthless shepherd who's abandoned the flock. He doesn't even care about the people that need to hear about Jesus. So many betray Jesus and they don't get paid to go do so. But Judas does. He actually is going to make money off this. I don't think it's an accident that Matthew adds this detail because he wants us to make this connection to Zechariah. He knows Jewish people would understand these passages. He consistently uses Hebrew traditions and language to show his prophecies being fulfilled perfectly, even from passages that aren't apparently messianic when we look at it. Matthew often makes these connections, 30 pieces of silver, and, and the passages you look at seem to be about God and Israel. So coming soon, it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver to value him who was priced, of whom the children of Israel priced, and gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. There's also a reference in Jeremiah that matches this too. This is like, to me, this is like studying a Mendelbrot set, right? The more you zoom in and the more eternal it looks like, the more you realize God has absolutely orchestrated everything at a level of complexity and beauty that we can't quite get our brains around, right? The, the fractals of math are stunning to mathematicians. And, there's, and it should be something that's stunning to us that we see the layers and the infinite nature of God in how Matthew writes this book, which makes you wonder, is Matthew that smart or is the Holy Spirit inspiring a human to write a book like this that makes those kinds of connections? And I got to think, like, I don't think Matthew is that smart. I think he's just writing what happened, right? Verse 17, now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is Thursday morning when they prepare the meal, day four of Passover, the leaven's all cleared out of the house, the lamps are prepared, um, they've got their oil ready so they can stay up through the night if they want to. Um, the sin is, is not dealt with yet, but they're ready to go, just like he's been teaching in the last chapter. So they remember on this day how God redeemed Israel for himself. God raised up more Moses to orchestrate the deliverance of Israel. In the Old Testament, redemption leads to the kingdom of Israel, which leads to the Messiah. In the New Testament, redemption leads to a new kingdom, which leads to the coming of the Messiah. Right? It really hasn't changed much. Luke 22, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Luke goes out of his way to make us look at that lamb again. Josephus, Roman historian, says on this sacrifice, April 3rd, 33 AD, 256,500 lambs were sacrificed in a day. And you say, that's not physically possible. Yeah, it is. You're feeding about 2 million people um, with 144 priests, which would be all 24 cycles of the priests come in for Passover. They all line up. You have your lamb ready to go, and they slit a neck. And you can kill a lamb about every 10 seconds. So if you're doing one lamb per 10 seconds, it would take 144 men from 1 o'clock to 6 o'clock to sacrifice a quarter million lamb. So the blood, just think of that. Think of the amount of blood flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. And this is in, in replacement of the actual Jewish people getting killed. Um, so this is a massive amount of, of, of slaughtering that's going to happen on that day. The disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand 
and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Normally this would be done on day seven. So what's odd here is they're going to be doing a Passover feast before day seven, right? Something's not right here. So John 13, 1 says, now before the feast of the Passover, John goes out of his way to point out they're eating this last supper on a day that's not the day that the lamb gets slain. Like they're doing it early. So this isn't the Passover meal. Jesus is going to be the Passover meal. But they're going to have a last supper. And that's why as Christians we call it the last supper. We don't call it the Passover supper. It wasn't a Passover supper. It was the last supper. Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the lamb, he holds a secret meal ahead of schedule. It's in this guy's house. It's in the upper room. They're doing it because you don't want to make a big scene that you're having a big feast on the day you're not supposed to be having a feast, right? That would get people upset with you in the Jewish community. So when evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Why do we see that in verse 20? Because evening's the beginning of the day. So as they do this, they're starting the clock and they do it on the next day. So everybody else in Jerusalem is going to be eating at evening time. He's doing this meal before them the day before, but it's all the same day on a Jewish calendar. Does that make sense? So it still fits with the Passover thing. They're eating at 6 p.m. tonight. Everybody else is eating at 5 p.m. the next day, but it's all part of the 24-hour cycle. Now, when they're eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. <laughs> They've traveled together for three years now, so this would be quite a conversation stopper. Like Jesus says that and the whole room just goes quiet. Um, it's hard to imagine that. They, they all live together and eat together and hang out together. Um, including Judas, he would have been returned from the temple by now. He, he, he's holding their treasurer since Judas was the treasurer, John 13, 29. Uh, a position of, of prominence with the group. I think what's interesting here is it doesn't even occur to them to say, is it Judas? They all say, is it me? Right? It's, it's beyond them to think that some, like, well, I'm struggling with these things too, which indicates like the disciples were all like, is our, is our teacher nuts? Like, am I the one that is beach? They don't even know. It's a really an odd thing. So verse 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful. This is horrible. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? So they're going around the table. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, that, you'd think that might be a specific person, but at a Jewish meal, there'd be a bowl of oil in the middle. Good Italian restaurants do this. Put a little pepper in it and the oil, and you dip your bread in it. But everybody's dipping in the same bowl. So everybody at the table would break bread and share oil from the same oil. Um, verse, Psalm 41, 9. Yes, my own familiar friend who I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Right? It's all Old Testament. Everything fits. So when Matthew's sharing this, that's the lyrics from a song would come into the Hebrew reader's head. What a humble group of people that they, they think it might be me. And I just think of that idea of like, we work out our faith in fear and trembling. We're all being like, Lord, am I doing it right? Am I doing it okay? I don't know what's happening tomorrow. And I, just the humility of these disciples. And the Son of Man indeed goes, verse 24, just as it's written of him. Again, Matthew wants us reading the Old Testament. He's going exactly the way the Old Testament said it would happen. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have good, been good for that man if he had never been born. And then Judas, who was betraying him, present tense, 
answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you've said it. Ow. <laughs> like he's saying you, is it me? Because he's trying to fit in, right? They're all going around the table saying, is it me? Is it me? And he's like, is it me? And Jesus is like, you said it. Holy moly, to just call somebody out at the table like that? You're the betrayer? I, you know, frankly, Judas probably thought he was doing all this in secret. And what he's not realizing, what he didn't believe in the first place is that Jesus actually is God. That what he's saying isn't arrogance. It isn't, it, it, it isn't blasphemy because he's God. And when Jesus does this super subtle little miracle, the person that is going to betray me, and then they, he lets them kind of worry about it a little bit. And then Judas, with his own words, Rabbi, is it I? Rabbi, is it I? You said it with your own words. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There's nothing worse than somebody who pretends to be a friend and they, they're, all they have in their heart is hatred. It's horrible. I wonder if Jesus is hoping for repentance here. Maybe he's hoping Judas will come around. I think Jesus loved Judas. And I think this, this had to just break his heart. In a, it, worse than the whips that are coming, worse than the, the cross and the nails, is this absolute betrayal from a friend. Other Gospels include the excess of Judas here prior to verse 26. So when Jesus says this to Judas, Judas is not only feeling like he's low on the totem pole from the thing with Mary, now he's feeling like Jesus is absolutely kicking him out of the group. Gets up, leaves the table, goes out in a huff. Jesus goes back to hang out with the disciples. So, <laughs> verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Yes, we're going to do communion today. <laughs> it just fit. Um, Jesus is still teaching them that Passover is about him. He takes the bread. The bread that they're talking about would have been crackers that had no leaven in them, like saltine crackers. And they would have been pierced with little holes, which is still why we pierce these crackers. It's part of how you cook unleavened bread. And he would break that. And then in verse 27, he took the cup. The cup would have been filled with wine, which is how you purified things because you let it ferment and then it was healthier to drink. You know, uh, fruit can rot. So you let it ferment instead took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. <laughs> I like the directness of Matthew, like drink from it, all of you. And it's not a request. It, it, it's do it. If you're going to be following Jesus, this is a command. Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Make no mistake about it. He's replacing Passover. Passover was a, a symbolic remembrance of the remission of sins and the redemption of Israel. And when Jesus says new covenant in verse 28, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant getting replaced. We're substituting one for the other. I like how Dave Gusick puts it. When the bread is, was lifted up at Passover, the head of the meal said, this is the bread of affliction for which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. That was like a stock prayer that was said in every household for thousands of years. Everything eaten at the Passover meal had symbolic meaning. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. The salt water remembered the tears that were shed under a, 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 a Egypt's oppression. You could do a whole one-hour teaching just on the Passover. 
and every little piece of it had imagery. John includes this as one of Jesus' teaching. Matthew includes it right here. So John, Jesus added more to it. And, and in John 6.35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And the prayer of Passover is, come everyone who hungers and everyone who thirsts. And eat this bread. Do it in remembrance of me. God incarnated himself, condescended himself into a limited human form so he could start the next era of humanity in the same way that he came upon Egypt and took the firstborn sons. He came down to earth and interacted with humans. With that, it was death itself in judgment. With Jesus, it's salvation itself in life and in redemption. But both of them are a redeeming act. Take, eat, this is my body. So we have some Christian communities get really caught up on this sentence. And they believe in a thing called transubstantiation, that when we take the bread, it actually turns into Jesus' flesh in our mouth. I think that zombie vampire, like, creepy. Like, that's, it's weird. I don't think that there was one Jewish person when Jesus said this verse, I don't think there was one Jewish person that thought to themselves, oh, this is actually the bread of... Um, they all knew it was imagery of what was going on. With, they all know it's imagery of Egypt. Why would it suddenly not be imagery anymore in the New Covenant, right? So they knew that the blood that went over the doorframe from the lambs, that when they drank of the cup, that it was wine that represented the blood that went over the doorpost. So when Jesus says, this is my blood, it's the, this cup of wine that was in his hand is representing his blood. He's using the same language that the Jews used with Passover. There's no difference. In the same way, he never saw the bread as actual affliction or actual struggle. The salt water was never used as actual tears. Jewish people didn't collect their tears, right? And, and you have actual tears that were there. So when Christians argue that the bread and wine are actual parts of Jesus, they're just not getting it from the Bible. They're getting it from some other layer of human interpretation but they're not getting it from this because I don't think any of the disciples misunderstood what Jesus was saying here, right? And he wasn't saying like, look, I just, I, you know, while Mary was doing the anointing oil, I was bleeding myself and filling up cups of blood for you. That didn't happen. It's called an image. And so they take this voluntary cup, but it is a command. If we follow Jesus, that's voluntary. When we choose to follow Jesus, there are certain things we're commanded to do. Taking communion is one of them. We do it because Jesus said to do it. It's really simple. So this understanding has to be somewhat vital. It has to go down to our core. And in the East, this eating of bread and, and, and um, the blood, blood and the wine, part of it is that it becomes part of us. We consume it so that it is we are engaged with the imagery ourselves. Individually, we take the cup. Whole families get preserved by the blood of the lamb, but individuals take the bread and individuals eat of the cup. Same as at Passover. There's no tears of Israel's grief in the new covenant, but there is tears from a loving savior. There is a freedom of oppression and sin, and there is a salvation of life in both covenants. And then he gave thanks. In the Greek, the word uh, for that is Eucharist, which is where we get the name Eucharist. So he gave thanks. The simple meaning of the word Eucharist 
is that Jesus is appreciating this imagery and what it is and what's going to happen. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he had to. He did it because of the joy set before him. Once there were wooden cups and golden priests, now there are golden cups and wooden priests. You know, that's Trapp's interpretation of it. There's a sweetness to this that it doesn't come because of the ornateness of it. It doesn't come because it's got an awesome musical set as we contemplate things. The beauty of the communion is between you and God and that relationship that we have. The blood being the new covenant is that there are new people. The first covenant was for the people of Israel. This new covenant is for all of the people of the world that choose to be part of God's kingdom. So Jesus is proclaiming here a new covenant with God, which is once again putting himself in the position of authority as though he's God. Because God made the covenant with the Israelites and Jesus makes the covenant with the church. Either Jesus is nuts and he should be crucified because he's blaspheming, or Jesus is actually God and this is beautiful. Only God can replace God's covenant, and Jesus takes that role without question and without doubt. And there are weird spin-off religions that question Jesus' divinity. Then they should agree that he should have been crucified, because if he's not divine, then making new covenants sounds a lot like blasphemy to me. So, and at this point, he hasn't been resurrected yet. Like, I gotta think, I might have been a Judas-type character. Because I would have known the word like Judas did, and I'd be like, this guy's blaspheming left and right. He thinks he's God. And until the resurrection happens to prove it, you got to just take it on faith. And I don't know where Mary found that kind of faith and where the other 11 disciples found the faith. I got to, like, if I'm just honest with myself, if somebody came around and started telling me they were God, I would be skeptical of that. And I think that's reasonable. But these people had seen and lived with him for three years. And there's 11 out of the 12 that are right there with him and they take the cup and they eat the bread. It's amazing. I think today when we take communion, consider the fact of how few people take communion on a Sunday and how many people are on this planet. It is a hard thing sometimes for people to change their worldview and say, I will serve Jesus with my life. I think it's just as hard as it was for Judas. And praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit breaks that reason and breaks down that hard heart because millions of people have come to accept Jesus as their Savior. And the only way that happens is the Holy Spirit has affected millions of people. And they've met and seen or interacted with Jesus as they come into salvation. Jesus does the saving. All we need to do is share the good news. The tradition then becomes part of how Christians remember our personal salvation, our redemption that we've been bought with a price, and how we were founded as a new kingdom to, that was established not by some good rabbi. It was established by God himself in incarnate form before he was killed. He made himself. When God prom promised David that his throne would be eternal, I love how this is connecting with the Sunday night stuff. When, when God made the Davidic covenant, David then was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prayed this prayer. And I just, David prayed, in thankfulness to God for the, the covenant that he made with him. 2 Samuel 7, 23, Who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name? Do you see that? God himself did it. And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds and for your land before your people for whom you redeemed yourself. 
from Egypt, the nations and their gods. Now, there's a way to read that sentence that makes perfect sense with what happened in Egypt. There's also a way to read that sentence that God claimed his people for himself, by himself, absolutely saying it perfectly to fit with what happened with Jesus. Who could have thought of that? John 19, 7, the Jews answered him uh, when, he's, uh, when his accusers are about to crucify him. I love that John records this. The Jews answered Jesus, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Out of their mouth came the perfect truth. And under the law, God made a law that made it so the Jews had to kill him because of what came out of his mouth. He gave himself. It's hard then to blame the Jews who are doing their job under the law. So God did this himself. He redeemed, he made the rules, and then he made the rules such that he would be crucified at this time because of what he said. And it's all planned out. The lamb is an image of sacrifice that provided the blood that went on the doorposts so that everything would go passing over the Jews. The lamb comes last. We commemorate the sacrifice and the death. We don't just commemorate Jesus' life. Notice that. The blood that's shed for many, we commemorate the death. But we live because of the re resurrection. But in Passover, they're commemorating the gift, the sacrifice. Communion, then, is sharing a meal in a household the way we commune with God. And sharing a meal is absolutely an image of heaven, given the wedding feast of the Lamb. So when we fellowship together as human beings and we say, I will sit with these weird people because I love them, because they love the same God I love, that's a community and a fellowship that Jesus defines as a new covenant which is shed for many. Not just the 11 people, but many people. Right? Not just Peter, but all of us. Mortal man, cursed by death, could never give an eternal gift that purifies the curse of death. Um, I think this is important because I just want to get, like, this is our theology. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... Thus death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the offense. For by the one man's offense many died, but much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of just one man, Jesus Christ, that then abounds to many. That's the theology. Jesus is talking about his blood claiming its worthy, pure, capable, holy, cleansing power. His blood didn't experience the curse. He never sinned. So it reverses everything. All of this is established in the Old Testament. This is a new covenant because there was an old covenant. And the way it's laid out is perfect. There's an awareness of right and wrong. God's transformative spirit comes in us. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. Actually read all of Jeremiah 31 this week. <laughs> read the whole chapter, right? Hebrews 8 is another one. Read the whole chapter like that walks through this. There's an awareness of right and wrong. Then there's awareness of our relationship with God. I will be their God. They will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Uh, there's an awareness of forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will be no more. Jeremiah 31, 44. And all of a sudden we know that the weight's lifted. It's just gone. For people that become believers later in life, like kids, I don't think they've piled up as many sins. But when adults become believers, they'll express this idea of, I just felt free. All of a sudden, it was like the weight was lifted. 
it just disappeared. I was aware of my right and wrong. I did something wrong, a lifetime of it. I was aware that there is a God that is trying to relate to me. And there's an awareness of forgiveness. And that God chose to forgive me. And poof, it all goes away. Right? All of a sudden, we know that our guilt is gone. This is the remission of sins in the verse we're reading right now. This is the remission of sins. They're remitted. They're gone. Jesus shifts from this mourning and he turns them into the old covenant. Instead of mourning his burial, let's talk about the remission of sins. Instead of worrying about all the negatives, let's talk about the positives of the kingdom. They're rejoicing as the law of sin is getting paid for tomorrow. Right? In Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a great portion, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. All in the Old Testament. Verse 29 in Matthew. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, Revelations 19.9, he said to me, Right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. I can't help but think part of how the, he's telling the disciples in the last week, he's telling them to, not, well, last week for us, he was telling them to be ready, be on the watch. Part of how they need to be ready is to take communion. This is one of the things we do to remember everything that we've been talking about because this is how we're ready for Jesus. We remember what he did. We don't forget it. And that's so simple. People think they got to do tons and tons of things for God. Hmm, take communion. Hang out with other believers. Take communion. Remember the gift that he gave and pass it on to the people around you. Verse 30, and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is beautiful. Really, this ends the narrative. They enjoy this bittersweet meal with Jesus, aware of everything that's coming, fully accepting the teaching that he's given. The sun sets on day five, which makes it Good Friday. And they sing this song, which of course makes me think, what did Jesus sound like when he was singing? Was he on key? I have to imagine Jesus was a good singer because he spoke to crowds of thousands. He had vocal cords that worked very, very well. And how beautiful would it be to sing praise to God with God? Like, can you imagine? Like, if only they had this on, like, a video. And it got, so this is the image of the family. This is an image of the church. They're just singing a song together, and it's sweet. And they have somebody who can sing, I hope. doesn't say they had any instruments. They just sang. And Jesus sings this on the night of his crucifixion. He's enjoying a sweet moment with his family. This is beautiful. Back to Hebrew thinking, the, the peace of God is never reliant on the circumstances of the person. Paul and Silas were singing in a jail cell. Jesus is singing on the night of his death. Consider the peace that was in his heart. Our peace is not reliant on our circumstances, never has been. And starting with this song that they sing, this is where Christians get. People get scared of being persecuted when they're not persecuted. Christians that are persecuted read their stories again and again and again. There's an amazing peace that the Holy Spirit brings to where they're just okay with it. They're good to go. And reading the, the songs and the, and the books of the martyrs and reading those stories for the last 2,000 years, Jesus just, I think, brought a spirit of peace on his disciples the night before so they could sleep well. 
and they sung Passover hymns. So for Passover, there were certain hymns that got sung. There is Psalm 116 through Psalm 118. So that's an assignment for this week too, of course. Read those three Psalms very carefully. And I'm going to read selections right now, because and then I'm going to kind of close on that. I think I'm going to close on that. Yes, I am. These are the songs they would have been singing. They would have sang these words, because there's three songs you sing at this meal, right? And of course, when Jewish people sing, I can barely hear a melody. Like, if you've ever heard Trevor do it, like, I don't, there's a whole musical system there I don't get, so I'm not even going to try. But listen to these words that they were singing right now. Verse, uh, Psalm 116, verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. 117 is really short and simple. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you people, for his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118, praise to God for his everlasting mercy. And then um, Psalm, uh, praise, oh, uh, God is the Lord. He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. I got to think that they had tears coming down their faces knowing these words perfectly fit what was about to happen with Jesus and that they'd been singing them since they were children. Like you had to have this sense of like, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have been like Jesus. Maybe I would have been sitting at Jesus' feet just like I am today. That you suddenly you just see it. My whole life, Jesus, has been preparing me for this moment. And everything fits. There's order to all of it. I just don't see it because I'm human. But they're singing these songs and hearing these words that they've sung many times before. Decades of songs. And they're hearing the words fresh for the first time. Oh, this is talking about Jesus. Beautiful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. Um, and we lift you up. How mighty you are, Lord. How good you are. Your mercy endures forever. And your merciful kindness is great towards us. You've given us a light. Lord, you've taken the sacrifice. You've bound it to the altar. You're my God and I will praise you. I will exalt you and give you thanks, Lord, and lift you up and we praise your name in Jesus' name. We're going to go right into...
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.